three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. I just, put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits episode 17. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen, and essentially this is a podcast about, well, just about everything, ranging from psychology and philosophy to nutrition and fitness to dating and back again. This week, myself and my distinguished guest, he's here, guys, we're finally going to be discussing those incredibly thought-provoking topics that I've previewed in the last two shows, including aging. What exactly is aging, and is there anything we can do to slow the process of aging? Space exploration. How long until we'll be colonizing Mars or perhaps the moon? And finally, all about money. Why the Federal Reserve is the most powerful group in the world that you don't even know about. And why the next recession might be right around the corner. All that and so much more on this week's episode of... Nervous Habits. Anyway, send those emails in to nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com if you haven't already. Always get excellent feedback from you guys. Past few episodes has been stellar. Um, you know, if there's questions, concerns, comments you have about the episodes, um, or if you have ideas for topics, things you want to hear us talk about, feel free to shoot me an email, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Also, follow us on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast. Um, guys, this week I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by another one of my longtime friends. You've been, you know, uh, I've been very fortunate to have had some some really, um, you know, gifted intellects, intellectual minds on the show. Uh, you know, you've heard from many of my close friends before at this point. Uh, my friend here, uh, Sevenos Axios. Uh, Sevenos, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Ricky, for the good, uh, the nice introduction. Very flattered. Well, the introduction's not over yet, buddy. You're not <laughs> out of the woods yet. Uh, Sevenos, in addition to being an incredible friend, is, is really one of the most uh, intelligent um, people that I know. Sevenos works Wait, as... That, a, that's too much. No, like, like put, <laughs> cut it off. <laughs> Sevenos is an engineer with an aeronautics company, uh, and, and you know he can speak more about this, but uh, my understanding is that the company builds satellites for companies like uh, Newton, uh, Google, Google Earth Sky and NASA. Sky, yeah. And, you know, the other day I asked Stephanos, you know, what'd you do at work the last week? And he casually told me that he built a satellite that was being sent to Jupiter uh, or Europa, Jupiter's largest moon. Um, not largest. But what'd you say? Not the largest. Not the largest? The, the uh, likeliest candidate for life. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. Maybe we'll talk about that in a moment. But what's great about Stephanos, or Nose, as he's endearingly referred to amongst his friends, is he is not a one-trick pony, you guys. He, he knows a fuck ton about uh, science and engineering, but also knows a lot about things like finance and economics. Uh, which we'll speak about. So, you know, as I mentioned, lots of great guests we've had so far, Holly and Adam and Jeremy and AJ and Ian. Um, but I am beyond thrilled to have one of my, my close friends here, uh, this budding genius today, Stevanos. Hey, guys. How, how do I do, boys? Hey, do great. Uh, just one thing, uh, you know, very flattering uh, introduction, but I uh, do, do want to fully disclose I am an amateur in everything I am about uh, to speak to. Uh, yeah, just interests that, uh, you know, myself and, you know, Ricky have uh, – but I hope I can contribute something to the conversation. Well, uh, you know, definitely the first um, segment on aging. I will say you're an amateur, obviously, uh, didn't, you know, uh, specialize in that in your career. Sure, and right. Same thing with finance. But when we talk about space exploration in a moment, yeah, that's sure. something that you actually study yeah, yeah, quite a bit. Like, that, that's your career. That's, yeah, that's so no need to, you yeah, know, inject yeah, 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 yeah. to that. Right, right. All right. So, so I, want, I want to dive deep into uh, aging, first of all. And aging is an episode, uh, is a topic that we've... We've alluded to many different points, and it's something that's really interesting. Most people don't think about aging because it happens. Aging happens over your life. You know, you look in the mirror, you don't really see the changes that are happening physiologically, emotionally. So, Sevenos, 
you know, we were having an interesting talk, uh, I think it was a month or two ago, back when we first started planning this, this podcast, about how life goes by more quickly when you're older. Do you remember we were with, this was when we were painting, and you had said that, and I, I don't know if this is something that, that you know, anyone else has thought about, but like, life, as you age, between like 1 to 18, and then from 18 to 24, 24 to 30, like life goes by quickly, subjectively, yeah, as you get older. Right, what, right. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it just comes down to the, you know, the idea. I'll just give a, an example. You're five years old. Uh, you're turning six. You know, a year may pass, but you know that that's you know twenty percent of what was your 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 life up until you know turning six years old, right? So that that one year. Uh, it's perceived to be a much longer period of time than, say, you know, a thirty-year-old uh, person turning thirty-one, where you know it's a you know one thirtieth, uh, you know, of your lifespan. So I think, like you said, it's all very subjective, and it comes down to you know how many you know that that year relative to the number of years you've lived. Uh, so that's really interesting. So what you're saying is it comes out to per- percentages of a whole. So when yeah, you're so. when you're five and you turn six. It's been twenty percent of your life, so it feels like it's it was a very slow year. But when you're, you know, like me, I'm it's my birthday, boys. Uh, so I'm gonna be turning twenty seven in less than three hours. Right. So twenty six to twenty seven is one one twenty seventh of my life. Mm-hmm. So that's a very small proportion. Right. So it went by like this, as sure. opposed to when I'm much younger. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh- so I think that explains it. And because you are the, the amateur expert on this, we're going to do this kind of interview style. I'm going to shoot out some questions, and, and you kind of answer to the best of your ability. No pressure whatsoever. Yeah, sure. But I guess the best place to start is, you know, what what is aging? If you were to describe to a child, a five- or six-year-old, what what happens when we age exactly, you know, to our bodies, on the macro level, or even on the micro level to ourselves? Uh, I guess just maybe on the macro level. Uh, yeah, you think maybe about a, a, a brand-new car. You buy a brand-new car. Uh, it's uh, you know, the engine's perfect. The uh, you know, the tires are great. Suspension's really nice. Uh, you know, but uh, you know, five years down the line, it's going to accumulate quite a bit of damage, and maybe the engine doesn't run quite as well as anymore. The suspension isn't as springy as it had been in the past. You know, some accumulation of damage, and I think aging is uh, very similar to that. You know, as you as we do uh, age, there's your body is sustaining some damage and cells are dividing and maybe there might be some errors in those divisions and you're accumulating damage uh, over that time. And I think aging, what we what we see on the outside is, is a result of that accumulation of damage. And would you say that on the cellular level, to your knowledge, like e- each cell is, undergr- is undergoing this damage or it's, it's, it's holistically what's happening to your entire body? I think, like, I, I think it starts with the the damage that the that the cells uh, that the cells experience through each division. I think I don't think every division of a cell is perfect, and I think uh, you know there are there are errors that that, that happen. And what's interesting about when when you look at the age for aging from the holistic per- perspective is like life expectancy. You know, as technology improves, the average life expectancy has been elongated for a number of reasons. Like back in 1900, the average life expectancy was 46 years old for men and 48 years old for women. So women always live a little bit, a little bit, a little bit long, longer on the um, general level. Then you go to 1950, and the life expectancy jumps up to 65.6 for men and 71 years old for women. So that that gap is growing. And now today, in 2019, Stephanos, the average age for both sexes in America is 79.2 years old. You know, we're not, we're no longer dying from the common cold or tuberculosis or typhoid fever or the plague or dysentery. We're dying from things like heart attacks, cancer, DUIs, shootings, suicides, 
and old age. Can't forget drug overdose. I dr- oh, dr- unless you already mentioned that, sorry. Um, no, no, it's, no a, it's a big contributor. I know this year the, the U.S. life expectancy did decline, I think, in large part because of the opioid crisis and drug overdoses, things like that. So. Oh, I did not know that. And in 2019, the leading causes of death in order are heart disease, one, cancer, two, accidents, three, particularly with motor vehicles, uh, chronic lower respiratory disease, that was a surprise, and stroke. So let me ask you two questions, Stephanos. Number one, what do you take away from this, the progression of life expectancy and how, how it's expanded over time? And number two, what does it mean when it's said that someone dies from old age? So let's say someone you know avoids accidents, has stellar genetics, no heart disease, no cancer, but age 95, they die and the cause of death in the coroner's report is natural causes or old age. What does that mean exactly? You know, we, there, there, are, there are obvious causes of death, heart attack, uh, cancer, things like that that we can that we can uh, address through you know advances in medical technology and you know I, th- I think we've successfully been able to do that and that's uh, you know in large part why our life expectancy has uh, grown so much in the past 50 60 years but I think we're pushing the limits now where you know we're no longer uh, you know seeing death because of cancer or heart attack things like that that are treatable but we're pushing the limits of the life expectancy potential of a human being um, and I think uh, that you know, when we see death by natural causes, I think that's uh, that, that's something that's going to be more difficult to tackle. To, to uh, it's a little bit ambiguous. There's a lot of factors involved. So, Stephanos, when you say we're pushing the limits, that's a very interesting, um, like an interesting choice of words there, because you're alluding to the fact that you think there is a limit. There is a limit to which the human body can sustain its damage and just like subsist over time because you know now with the uh, with the efforts towards immortality projects um and nanotech and we'll get into that in a moment but people are looking to um you know uh, really looking to explore anti-aging slowing the, the process of aging expanding the human life um but you but what you're saying is eventually we're going to reach the upper limit where we we just can't live any longer yeah right i, I think that you know there have been you know, a number of studies and you know a number of theories about the about the subject you know, I think that you know we we have a ceiling. There there is a, a maximum the, that we might ever reach, um, and I think there's a lot of exciting research and uh, funding and development in the field right now, trying to uh, figure out what uh, what dictates that limit. Okay, yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. And why don't we be a little more specific? Uh, there are there are a number of different terms, concepts, theories as they relate to the aging process. I want to go through them with you, kind of kind of quickly. Um, I'm going to mention some terminology to you, and I want you to tell you know for the ordinary person, um, really explain what it is and what you know about it. Because seven, the reality is most people do not know that you know what. What the aging process entails, and you know what efforts are being done with regards to aging, with, with, with regards to free radicals and how they protect us from aging. Is this similar to antioxidants and what and what the antioxidants do to our body? Because you know I've, I mentioned this a bunch of times with how it relates to nutrition, but a lot of people subscribe to eating fruits and vegetables that are high in antioxidants because it lowers their risk of cancer and improves blood circulation, things like that. Could that be related to um, you know the protection that certain uh, you know substances and compounds? offer us from the aging process yeah so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of revisit what we were talking about earlier so we were talking about uh, you know an accumulation of damage at the cellular level and i I think you know cellular cellular damage because of free radicals is is something that it's important to address and and just from a very layman's perspective it's you know the idea that we have you know some maybe uh 
reactive uh, you know molecules uh, that are kind of in layman's terms stealing electrons damaging other cells um, and, and those you generally you'll you'll you associate that with pesticides pollution bad uh, you know, consumption of uh, poor poor diets so uh, the idea is that you know, you have these free radicals stealing electrons from uh, from your cells, what, what do you do about it? And the body's natural mechanism for defending against it is uh, uh, donation of some electron, and that's accomplished through, as Ricky alluded to, uh, antioxidants. Um, and that can be things vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, and you can get that through uh, you know, fruits, vegetables, things like that. So, so with with some organisms, Stephanos, what they found just uh, just to give like concrete, um, you know, illustrations of what you're saying, like with yeast and with Drosophila, there's evidence that reducing the oxidative damage that you're speaking about can actually extend lifespan. So it's almost like maybe this is the heart of anti aging. Um, undoing the damage that these free radicals are doing and stealing the electrons is part of what you know enables people to live longer under this I think, theory. I think, I think it's one component of uh, that you know sets that upper limit on on, on aging and, and contributes to cellular damage, but it's not the only one. For sure, and, and you know that kind of ties into the the, the next um, aging related theory, which is the concept of telomeres, which I, I initially thought was telometers. Um, and this is another thing that I had never heard about. And when you spoke to me about it three, four years ago, it blew my mind. So what exactly is a telomere? And is this something that, that you can observe in humans? Or is this really more specific to, to things like plants or trees? Um, so I guess the way I like to think about it is you, you have your DNA. And at the end of your DNA is kind of like the, you think about like the plastic cap on your shoelaces. Yeah, that's really where the, where the telomere is. It's some protective cap on, at the end of a at the end of your DNA uh, protecting your your uh, genetic data um, you know as your as your cells do divide um, you know, as your cells divide that that the telomere does get does get shorter and that's that's kind of uh, our indication or our metric for understanding uh, you know, biological aging because they actually said there was an article in seeker which, which is quite interesting I'm not sure have you have you heard of seeker no, no, uh, no. It's quite interesting where they look at the human hand and they compare it to a tree, and they say much like you can uh, you can observe the rings of a tree and understand where did this tree come from, what's what's its genome, its, its phenotype, um, and and its aging process. Where is that on the timeline? Some people can look at the hand, and this kind of ties into um, if if you guys have any belief in uh, you know like like astrology or or psychics, who some of them will look at your at your hand and they'll look at the 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 lines on your palm mm -hmm. and they'll say, oh wow you have this line which is indicative of like a strong river of growth you know I, I, have you heard of that it's it's in pop culture pop psychology all the time i don't know if i believe it but yeah i, I, I don't know I've if i believe it either it. but but there is a according to this article there's a scientific basis to the fact that you could you might be able to date humans the same way you would date a tree with the telomeres yeah i think that's um i guess like what we are what you know the scientific community is kind of exploring i think the the you know they're there is some evidence to suggest that yes, uh, you can use telomeres to uh, approximate or to uh, estimate you know, your biological age. Yeah, absolutely. And, and another another substance, another compound that, that's uh, relevant to, to aging, and it's become more popular in the last couple of years, it's called resveratrol. Um, and I, I had heard about resveratrol through a family friend um, who, who told us told, told, told us an interesting story about it. But Stephanos, what you know, what do you know about resveratrol? And is this something that you you believe people you know should make an effort to, to learn more about? So we're, we're kind of getting into uh, I get maybe, maybe you might even call it controversial science because there's not a not a ton of I think uh, study to back it up. 
so my very basic understanding of resveratrol is, is the idea that the mitochondria has, uh, you know, the 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 mitochondria's function is to produce energy for for the cell, right? So as the there have been some studies that have shown that as you age, the mitochondria's uh, uh, capacity to produce energy does decrease over time. And I think the idea with resveratrol is that there have been some studies that shown have shown uh, that there's been some reinvigoration in layman's terms of, of that mitochondria's ability to produce energy and as a result maybe uh, reverse the uh, uh, or reverse the effects of aging in, in some in some uh, capacity. It's, again, there's not a, t- a ton of uh, studies to support it. There are studies to support it, but it's not fully fleshed out. Well, the difficult thing with, with a lot of these compounds, and I've talked about this, I feel like a hundred times, is correlation versus causation. Right. Is if people are eating a, a lot, you know, foods high in antioxidants, does that mean that antioxidants elongate your life, or could it be that people who eat foods high in antioxidants also happen to be have great genetics and great educations in this? League? So, with resveratrol specifically, resveratrol is found in red wine. Um, that's my understanding, and red wine is also with, loaded with antioxidants. So could it be that you know it's the antioxidants and the wine and the other you know things that make up wine that's you know having such a, a positive benefit on their lifespan, or is it the resveratrol? Um, and they actually did you know th- there was research on this. The 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 whole reason why resveratrol is in the um, the pop psych on aging is because there was a small village in Italy where. Out of everyone in the world, they had the longest life expectancy, this, this small group of people. And scientists you know, did empirical studies for years trying to figure out what was it in the lifestyles of these people that led them to, to live such long, healthy lives. Could it be the genetics? Could it be something they were eating or drinking? And they found that it was the resveratrol um, supplements that they were taking and all the red wine they were drinking that was leading them to extend their life. So so it wasn't it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't necessarily the, the fact that they were, um, you know – that they were take, drinking, that they were doing the resveratrol, that substantially, substantively led to that, to Stephanos' point of the controversy. But it's definitely something that's being explored. Um, now, you know, another another compound um, that I don't know if, if you had planned to discuss, but vitamin D is another one for sure that that you know could be linked to aging. Do you believe that there's a correlation there? Oh well, I mean, I think I think it just comes kind of comes back down to the, the you know the. the Free radical damage that your your body uh, sustains over its life, right? Uh, like we talked about, you know, the, those free radicals are neutralized by by antioxidants, and I, I believe vitamin D, among other vitamins, are, are uh, neutralizers. So I think uh, I think yes, I, I think there's some you know, relevance there to the idea of aging. Okay, and I know that you know you you had mentioned uh, when we first had the idea for this this segment, uh, Peter, Peter Diamandis and his ideas. Um, so. I don't know if there was a book or an article, but kind of sum up what is what does he have to say about all this, and, and you know what's what's his ideology. So I, I think Peter Diamand is just uh, so he's a uh, aerospace engineer, doctor, um, entrepreneur, uh, founder of the X Prize uh, Foundation, uh, re- really uh, intelligent guy. Um, so his his idea, his, his thoughts are that you know, the current uh, healthcare industry is flawed in that. Yeah, right now, if you uh, you know if if you go to the doctor, you generally go to the doctor when you're sick, right? Uh, you go you when you start to present symptoms. But you know, should treatment start when you start to present symptoms, or in an in ideal case, you know, you'd think that symptoms uh, that treatment should start before symptoms themselves are present. Uh, I think uh, so. His idea is, as opposed to a healthcare industry with an emphasis on treating sick sick people, you want a healthcare industry with an emphasis on preventing sickness. 
so he started a company called Human Longevity, uh, where the uh, idea is that that exactly he he's looking to catch catch these diseases and these these ailments uh, earlier on um, through uh, advances in medical technology, full body MRIs, genetic testing, um, uh, machine learning, uh, things like that. And and the goal, if you guys go to the Human Longevity website is not necessarily to produce someone who could live to be 250 years old, but it's to make sure that we all live to, to the ripe old age of 70, uh, excuse me, 70, <laughs> the ripe old age of 70, yeah. of 90 or 100, um, and making sure that we're not befallen by these... these something that's preventable. These early, exactly, right. something like something that's preventable. So you mentioned the full body MRIs that they yeah, offer. Right. So, so how would that work and how would, how would that help you? Oh well, I think it comes down to you. You might have one full body MRI. You might maybe you have an MRI right when, when you're sick, uh, but you know, your your doctor only has a single snapshot of, of your your body's state. You know, and that snapshot takes place when you are sick. But you know, what would be uh, significantly more useful is if the doctor had a maybe you might say a quote unquote like a movie of, of your body the, the the state of your body over time something to compare to uh, so that it can uh, so that that doctor can uh, de- detect any anomalies abnormalities or changes so the the idea is uh, more frequent imaging more frequent uh, uh, data collection on, on on the human body will help in uh, detecting and, and uh, addressing these issues. Mm. Okay, that, that, I mean, I mean, that's that's interesting to, to to ponder that most of these illnesses, even cancer, could be preventable if we catch them early enough. Yeah. Um, and what, does Diam does Bi- Diamandis touch on biologic age, or is that a completely different concept entirely? Um, I, I think I think he touches upon it, but I think he's he's uh, looking at you know what can we do now uh, to. Uh, address preventable uh, d- diseases, and I think maybe in the future, you know, we'll, we can look at uh, extending the uh, the ceiling on human life. But I think his emphasis, at, at least at the very at the very moment, is more on uh, preventing things that we can we mm-hmm. can address. And biologic age, seminars, that's the idea from what you said that you know, rather than my age being what my birth certificate says, my age being twenty seven or, or forty or, or sixty, your age is how much damage that your cells have accumulated. Is there a way to actually? read biological age is that subjective could a doctor look at your cells and tell you about your biologic age could an mri machine tell you your biologic age yeah i mean that's hard to say i i i you know i i can't say i know but i can uh, speculate that you know we have these uh, these telomeres which we're you know saying approximate uh you know the amount of damage uh that that a human body has taken so you you'd, you'd think that the you know maybe you have the initial length of a telomere when you're born and then you can measure the length of that telomere at some other point in your life and you can compare that to the length of the telomere of someone else and maybe you can gauge some sort of biological age that way um but you know, again that's speculation but i think that that's a sound line of reasoning so measuring the telomere is probably the best indicator that we have of someone's biologic age so yeah i think so you could hypothetically have someone who is 100, but their biologic age is like 40, and someone who's like 20, but their biologic age is 80, based right. on all sorts I mean, of you, like you, lifestyle factors. You probably factors. even look at even uh, you know more simple metrics, you know, your heart heart condition, you know, your your heart rate, resting heart rate, you know, you, the the state of your liver, the you know, state of your, uh, I guess mental mental health. I, I think uh, even from a, a less detailed level, you might be able to. Uh, you know, approximate some some a, a biological age. Mm. That, I mean, that, that's also interesting to consider because there's such a there's such a movement right now 
towards anti-aging. And I think it has to do with the, the, the media's fixation towards like having perpetual youth that we look, you know, our skin and our bodies that we look and feel young forever. And it's, it's you know, it, it, it calls to mind, there's a book called Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. And he, he wrote the bestseller Sapiens, which I've mentioned at least four or five times in the pod before. And he, he talks about how he believes the next big conquest for, for humankind uh, now that we've conquered, you know, plagues and famine and, you know, we're really prospering as, as a race, he thinks our next uh, mission is going to be to conquer immortality. And he projects a world in the future by, you know, 2030, in the next 10 years, where our body is going to be streaming with tiny nanorobots. And the nanorobots are essentially going to keep us from getting sick or transmit our thoughts to a wireless cr- cloud in order to detect diseases right as, as they're infecting our body and annihilate them right away. So as we think about humankind conquering immortality in the next decade, um, and as, as we look at in the artificial intelligence field, what's happening with the expansion of nanotechnology and wireless tech, he's, he foresees, and a lot of people in the community foresee uh, nanorobots actually in our bodies fighting our diseases um, before our immune systems can even react. Is that something that you think um, you know, is, is pragmatic? Um, do you think that the scientific community is like overblowing this? Um, you know, 20, 30, 10 years out, are you expecting to have nanobots in your body? Um, I mean, I think it's a, I, th- I think it might be a, a pragmatic and reasonable thing to expect, but, you know, whether, I don't necessarily know if it will be nanobots or maybe repurposed, uh, you know, organic material that, that's, that's kind of uh, doing that work, you know, viruses repurposed to attack cancer cells. It would not, nanobots would not just be for cancer detection, Stephanos. If you look at what this nanobot's doing, it's actually pushing. I don't know that. I don't. I don't know like the medical terms, but it looks like it's it's um, reducing plaque in in veins. It's like helping with the flow of the red blood cells. Mm-hmm. It's destroying you know uh, viral cells, intruders, sure, for, foreign sure. substances. So it's not. It's not just as if it's detecting cancer cells. Sure, it seems sure, like these sure. nanobots will be inside in- your interacting body, with interacting. The body in some way. Right. So that's you know. I mean, I, I don't know how we could ever die if we yeah. have nanobots in our body, like keeping disease away. Yeah, it's I mean, to think about. Yeah, it's hard to judge what kind of timeline we're looking at because even if we do have the technology to say uh, have some nanobots that do interact with your body, at what point are we comfortable with um, doing human trials? So we we don't know what the uh, implications of putting these nanobots or repurposed viruses in our body might be. Um, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about and, and to you know, continue researching. A hundred percent, like the ethics of, of experimentation. And one last thing I want to mention on aging um, is intermittent fasting. And there's a lot of um, you know folks in the in, in the community, and there's all all these ideas of like how can you slow aging in terms of your diet, nutrition, exercise. And people have said that by you know by not eating every or by restricting eating to like a 16 hour window through intermittent fasting, that's a way of allowing your body to recalculate its aging process, at least in the short term. Do you buy into that? I mean, what do you know about the literature on that? My, my understanding is the idea is that, you know, through caloric restriction, you know, some, you know, intermittent fasting, for example, your body's mechanism, um, your body's reaction to that uh, environment is to kind of slow uh, slow, I guess, the reactions, processes that are, that are you know, taking place in your body. Um, maybe that, uh, I have, I'm not sure if that's slowing cell division in any way, uh, but it might be. And as a result, you know, if you are slowing those reactions, slowing that cell division, 
uh, you uh, accumulate less damage. Mm. Uh, less damage as uh, fewer cells are, are copying themselves. So I think it all comes back down to the the, 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 ba- the basic tenets of uh, you know what we're doing to try to address the the ceiling of aging, and that's uh, you know reduce the damage that cells sustain as as we get older. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's been my experience, my exposure to the research, uh, and it's been done by um, folks at. Uh, countless universities. I'll, I'll include some some research from the Medical News Today Journal, from the Molecular Cell Journal, where they look at uh, the um, you know control group versus the intermittent fasting group and how it reverses signs of aging, like hair loss, wrinkles, um, and you know your metabolic rates. And it's found that it could help prevent age-related diseases like a cancer, cardiovascular disease, and fasting. So, Stephanos, we've covered a ton of ground uh, today talking about aging theories and and anti-aging practices, if there was one takeaway that you want the listeners to walk away from this podcast and, you know, either change their lifestyle or do some, you know, more learning, um, what would, you know, what would you want people to to take away from from this discussion? Sure. So I think uh, research, new research is coming out all the time uh, on what what might be good for our health. Uh, I think because of its changing nature, I I'd, I'd, I'd suggest not taking it so seriously, going out and buying resveratrol or NAD boosters or um, starting some fasting regimen. Uh, I think I'd just recommend going with common sense techniques for you know, living a healthy lifestyle. And uh, There's really uh, nothing bad that can come out of that. And uh, with any luck, you'll live an extra 30, 40 years. Absolutely. You heard it here first, folks. This man will live forever. Um, so really, so, so, some fantastic takeaways for the uh, for the aging segment. Um, I want to transition now to an area of per, per, particular interest to you, uh, for you, Mr. Axios, and that's space exploration. Um, and before I dive in, I, I have a couple um, you know, factoids to share. I just want to reemphasize for the, our listeners, what, what do you do in your work right now, and how does it pertain to uh, space exploration? Sure. Um, so I'm a aerospace engineer. Um, so space has been growing uh, for the past 20 years at a much faster rate than it had previously, where in the past it was mostly government work, defense. It's now very much commercial. So you see companies like SpaceX really leading the charge to commercialize space and make it cheaper. And as a result of that, with launch vehicles like the SpaceX vehicle getting so cheap, um, the delivery of satellites to orbit has become infinitely cheaper as well. Um, so my job as an aerospace engineer, I'm, I'm working on small sats. So small satellites going to low Earth orbit, taking images of Earth. Um, for example, satellites that are providing imaging for your, your Google Earth or uh, data for your Google Maps. Um, but we also do some satellites that go out as far as Pluto, uh, the most famous example is the New Horizons mission, which arrived to Pluto in June of 2015, I believe. So this is, I mean, this this is pretty pretty impressive that uh, Stephanos is, is a part of the you know cog in the machine that's, uh, as he said, building these satellites, contributing to uh, Google Google Earth, NASA imaging, um, really important work. And uh, who, who better to have this discussion with than me? And I want to kind of, or than me, than him. <laughs> and I want to kind of begin by uh, looking at this from like a philosophical, theoretical lens. Um, I mean, if you think about like the purpose of human life. You know, like we're we're on Earth, we're building families. I talked about in episode thirteen, legacy building. Um, and you know, pragmatically speaking, there is no 
uh, utility in exploring space because we're it's not you know we're we're here learning about our immediate localized environment on earth there's no like immediate pragmatic purpose to going out and you know hundreds of light years away and, and exploring other solar systems and other galaxies and i want to kind of share with you guys uh, you know some numbers I found in in the the vastness of the universe because in seven years you you know this but I believe the observable universe from edge to edge is ninety two billion light years apart mm. and one light year is the time that it takes light to travel to Earth so this not I mean can you read this number here one light year is right here nine. It's about it's nine, nine e to the twelfth nine yeah well that's that's if you're a, if you're a mathematician but it's about nine point five looks like. 100 million, 9.5 trillion kilometers away. Yeah, let, me, let me double check that. 9.5 trillion. And that's, that is one light year. And the universe is 92 billion light years apart. I mean, it's not something that our like uh, meager, like, uh, you know, human brains can even conceptualize. So when you see stars light, um, and we talk, Jeremy and I talked about this in episode nine, you're actually seeing the light of stars that have perished hundreds, maybe thousands of years ago, ago, and the light is just now reaching Earth for the first time. And of course, you know, we have the concept of the red shift, which all you guys learned in, you know, like middle school science class, which means the universe is continuing to expand. So we don't even know how large it is. So my first question for you, Stephanos, is theoretically speaking, um, why do you feel it's important to explore space given how how infinitely small we are in comparison to the uh, you know the vastness of the universe? Sure. Um, so I guess I'll approach it more from a from a pragmatic standpoint. Um, from a pragmatic standpoint, space offers a lot of benefits. Uh, to us uh, in the event we do explore one uh, it's very research resource rich trillions uh, of dollars in, in value uh, in mining resources are located on asteroids uh, you know well within our solar system and within our reach it offers a very resource rich um, uh, endeavor so in that in that way, it's it seems very obvious why we would uh, want to go to space. Also, I guess in more of a philosophical, uh, theoretical manner, uh, you know, Earth isn't necessarily going to last forever, and maybe humans do want to start searching for some new viable home. Um, and even if the Earth does continue to uh, thrive, I think it's in human nature to want to do that exploration. Um, and I, I think in in the in the effort of exploring, uh, humans will uh, inevitably come up with some sort of innovations uh, by making their way to space, given how challenging it is. Sounds like I'm I'm speaking to Elon Musk Jr. over here. We need we need to create a second planet. Um, so those were interesting points. I actually wasn't super familiar with the resource uh, aspect of finding, um, you know, mi minerals or um, you know, el like. Uh, tools that we might use to fortify life here on on asteroids, for example. That's that's super interesting. In terms of finding another uh, planet to potentially move to, we're going to talk later in the discussion about um, Musk and SpaceX and Blue Origin and what's being done to, to potentially colonize Mars in the in light of climate change. What about? Let me ask you another question. What about um, the search for intelligent life? I mean, again, like theoretically speaking versus pragmatically speaking. Pragmatically, it doesn't really like affect us if there's intelligent life. Theoretically, like a lot of people in academia 
I might want to, you know, uh, just ascertain whether or not there are other um, humans out there, other, um, you know, uh, organisms that are capable of um, being sentient and conscious and, and intelligent. So does that factor into your uh, motivation or, or your uh, justification of the work in space exploration, the potential of having intelligent life out there? Or is that something you just dismiss as being, you know, fre- you know sci-fi, far- farcical? Sure. Um, so I, I think... Given where we are in our, uh, you know, capabilities for getting to space, I, I don't think that really is a factor at the moment. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, we need to focus on what is something that's uh, accomplishable. What, what is some high goal? Uh, but I, I don't think we could uh, we could rely on uh, trying to find intelligent life as some, you know, impetus for investing in space. Um, it may be down the line, but at the moment, I think. Uh, you know, our sites are um, uh, a little bit lower. Uh, that being exploring the solar system and you know, building some, some uh, maybe moon colonies or uh, Mars bases. Those are lofty goals in and of themselves. And I think I think a lot of people are skeptical. Just just to kind of reinforce why we're asking this question, a lot of people are skeptical about uh, you know about the resources that we're allocating to space research. I mean, if you look at NASA, um, NASA obviously the the, the federal uh, agency that receives funding from uh, U.S. Congress. NASA uh, right now in um, the year 20, 2019, they were allocated twenty one. Uh, billion, I believe that's $21 billion. Um, and then next year, $23 billion. So it's, it's growing. And, you know, this in the, in the light of, you know, the, the, the fact that we have other programs, I mean, it's a zero sum game. NASA's getting 23 billion and then the Department of Defense is losing money or the welfare programs are losing money um, or, you know, programs supporting the environment are, are, are losing money. So it's important to kind of uh, justify why why we're undertaking these efforts, um, given you know what uh, you know just the resources that we're expending. And um, Stevanos touched on the colonization. We're going to go back to it. Um, space mining, uh, obviously, um, looking to extract valuable minerals um, could be a, a uh, you know a, a, an endeavor that's worth investing in. And then also, you know, we didn't really mention just it's in our nature as humans to be intellectually curious. I mean, if you look at, uh, just to draw a parallel in history, if you look at like uh, Columbus, uh, you know, his discovery of the new world, I mean, you can make the same argument like, you know, why care about the, the global environment you know we're just concerned about uh, locally what's going on in um, you know in in Asia and, and Africa and that's out of the world but he actually endeavored I mean he thought he was discovering the East Indies so maybe the motivations weren't as um, as sound as, as they appear to be on retrospect but um, that you know going out and exploring terrain and answering these big questions that's just in the nature of people certainly what's, so what's interesting about that is that you know that exploration also was motivated by some uh some capital investment in some way right it, there was some interest in you know building this this uh, more efficient trade passage with with the west indies so there there was some uh, monetary motivation behind it and i think uh the only way that space can kind of make that leap is if there is some argument for some financial reward in some way. And uh, I think we're seeing it now with the commercial space sector uh, uh, and developing at the rate that they are. And, you know, I I think now is a good time to kind of transition to the point that you made about having uh, Mars or having another, you know, planet, another moon as a failsafe. Because the reality is Earth... I mean, we know that that Earth, even under the best conditions, can't possibly last 
forever. And there's been a ton of literature out there. I'm, I'm going to link some of it, but about all of the uh, reasons, the factors that are going into um, the urgency of uh, climate change and what's happening with um, you know the average global warming increasing and this you know CO2 emissions at, at an all-time high um, and just you know what's uh, obviously the melting of, of, of the ice caps and these extreme climate events that are creating you know not only public health issues but a, potentially a, a future where um, earth is just no longer habitable for um, you know for for, for human beings. And, you know, there was an article by, um, I believe it was David, uh, David Foster Wallace, and he really, uh, previewed the dystopian hellscape that awaits us and experts out there. Um, you know, uh, David, uh, Wallace, uh, Wallace Wells, I think I misspoke. I said Foster Wallace. Um, he wrote that experts believe that we could, you know, reach this in, uh, uninhabitable earth by 2030. I mean, that's, we're talking, you know, 11 years. Uh, a lot of experts think 2050 is probably a safer assumption, and and it's just it's surprising because we were told for a long time that climate change was slow. But you know, the the reality is that we don't have a lot of time left on on this earth. So I mean, Stephanos, based on what you know about the the timeline of climate change, do you agree with these experts? Do you think that we need to? to be prepared to move off this planet in the next, you know, 20, 30 years? Or do you think we have a little bit more time than that? Um, I, I think that we have quite a bit more time than that. Um, I, I, you know, climate change is definitely uh, moving rapidly and the earth is changing, you know, at this very moment. Um, and we're seeing that in uh, more violent uh, uh, natural disasters, uh, warmer temperatures, uh, melting of the, of the ice caps. Um, but I think you know, humans are incredibly resourceful. We you know, survived through the Ice Age, uh, and I, I think uh, at least we are uh, well well suited, uh, well equipped for uh, surviving whatever new environments we might be confronted with here on Earth. But uh, uh, I think uh, you know may, maybe we don't want to have to adapt to those environments in, in the event the Earth does start changing. Uh, so drastically, and uh, maybe uh, some new home might be better in some way. But I think more importantly, at least for now, uh, what makes building some colony in space uh, so attractive is the idea that if we are going to become a spacefaring species, uh, you know, it's in incredibly, uh, it's it's much easier to move and to traverse space when you're already there. So, for example, a moon base uh, would be significantly easier to launch off of to uh, refuel, produce resources. Um, so, it will moving off of Earth will uh, make that significantly easier, and I think uh, motivate that that uh, space development quite a bit faster. Absolutely, and and that's a great segue into the conversation that that I want to have about the efforts that are being done to to, to colonize Mars. And, you know, Elon Musk um, obviously is one of the um, wealthiest people uh, in the world. Um, he, I think he's, uh, he's you know, been um, an entrepreneur for the last um, 20, 30 years, um, you know, building $3 billion companies in SpaceX, Tesla, SolarCity, not to mention the Boring Company um, and Neuralace. 
and being one of the founders of, of PayPal as well. And his life mission above all this other stuff is to create a human colony on Mars. And it's not even for, for him to go live there. It's just because this guy is so concerned with the subsistence of the human race. And to Stephanos' point, he doesn't think that can happen without, um, you know, w- w- without having uh, a colony like Mars. And so Elon Musk uh, and his company SpaceX have, have detailed kind of a loose timeline of how, how quickly you know, he thinks that we can get to Mars. And Stephanos, I want to run these dates by you and, and you, know, uh, you can kind of provide our listeners with, with an idea of like what the, the challenges are and, and how feasible it is. But in 2020, 2021, in the next two years, um, he wants to launch a uh, BFR, the uh, Big Falcon Rocket. Um, that's, no, I don't think it's Falcon. Big big Falcon rocket, SpaceX? Oh, you must have a uh, another name for it. I've heard uh, Big Fucking Rocket before. Big big Fucking Rocket? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so just... um. But anyway, so uh, he wants to launch a BFR in space in 20, uh, 2020, 2021 and get a spaceship into orbit. Like Stefano said, um, we get them into space and then it's it's easier to travel within space. Wants to launch two missions to Mars full of cargo and supplies, but no people in 2022. Um and then in 2023, wants to land the first big fucking spaceship, <laughs> VFS, uh, on Mars. Uh, 2023, launch the first uh, uh, people with BFR and send them around the moon. And 2024, uh, blast people on the first uh, human voyage to Mars. Boots on Mars in 2025. Um, and a Mars base in 2028. He doesn't actually think that we can uh, construct the first city on Mars until the 2030s. So that's, what's that, like 15, 15 20 years out. So... Let me ask you a couple questions of this. Number one, sure. Stevanos, to to the ordinary listener, wh- wh- why can't we just send people up today? Like, why can't? What's keeping us from, uh, you know, getting ten astronauts, putting them on this big fucking rocket, and just sending them to Mars? Why is it not that simple? Um, so, you know, we've sent people to the space station, we've sent people to the moon, but those those trips are you know, quite a bit shorter than a, a trip to Mars. So that that that's new. That the the duration of the trip is new and. And uh, something that we haven't, uh, you know, completed before. So I think there has to be studies, uh, and I think there are being there are st- studies being done. Um, um, what the effects of long term, uh, inha- uh, long term space um, uh, inhabitants you know, might have on the human body, um, and also what that what effect it might have on our psychology. So one, we we don't we we've never you know made a trip of that duration. Two, a BFR hasn't launched uh, to my knowledge yet. So I, I think um, you know, before that is launched, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves in uh, um, saying that uh, we should be able to send a, a human to Mars um, at, at, at this very moment. So you're saying it's not necessarily safe. If we don't know if a BFR can even get into... Because it, the way I understand the, the, um, the structural engineering of these things, the spaceship has to... When it gets to a certain point in the Earth's atmosphere, it needs to uh, let release a, a uh, second stage. So the first stage will uh, deploy, come back to Earth. So we don't even know if it can get to you know get through orbit and then break into the into the uh, outer space. So why are we sending cargo? Why are we sending robots? Why are we sending human beings up there if we don't know? Right. Yeah. And, I mean, it's we can probably be pretty confident that the BFR will uh, easily be able to exit Earth's atmosphere, but. You know, for example, get you know, getting to Mars and making making that landing uh, that that's going to be quite a bit more difficult. We've had I think NASA has had a, a couple a couple failures of uh, rovers landing on Mars. Uh, the environment's different. You know, the 
you know, gravity is different, uh, atmosphere is different. Um, so I, I think a, a lot of those factors make it uh, a little hasty to say that we could just send uh, humans up now, uh, at least without uh, assuming significant risk. Yeah, I wasn't super familiar with um, na- the you know challenges that NASA had, but I know that um, when SpaceX was sending their first rocket to uh, outer space, which was either the Falcon or, or the Dragon, I think it was the Falcon, um, they encountered problems with actually getting into orbit um, with, I don't know the you know structural engineering terms, but with the, the piece of the ship being released back to the Earth um, they, they had problems where it would explode in 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 the air there would be fires and so to your point you know it is very risky to to send humans or robots or you know whomever up there when you don't know um you know what uh what's going to happen and it's spacex you know give them credit for getting as far as they've got they've gotten so far and you know unlike nasa nasa contracts with boeing and you know these these trillion dollar uh companies SpaceX reuses parts, SpaceX builds everything in-house, and they've gotten to a tremendous point, but um, it's it's not, you know, uh, they still have a ways to go before they can get to um, get to Mars, before they can terraform the the planet, and, you know, when that happens, we're going to be, we're going to be in our, in our 80s and, and 90s, um, uh, 2100s, I think there was an article I'm going to link from a business insider where they actually uh, detail the, the timeline for um, turning Mars into an Earth-like colony, and they say the 2100s onward is when that can happen. So definitely, um, you know, uh, ambitious, uh, ambitious to say the least. But I think Stephanos, that's why SpaceX attracts such top talent in, um, you know, globally. Because you can, if you want to be, uh, you know, a space engineer or an astronaut or, uh, you know, you work in astrophysics, would you rather work for NASA? You know, uh, a company that puts satellites in outer space and takes pictures and uses $23 trillion of government funding to advance those causes? Or do you want to work at SpaceX, which is literally changing the course of the human race? I mean, can you see why Musk is attracting all these people? Yeah, sure. Uh, definitely can see why people would want to work on cutting edge, uh, pushing the envelope, you know, space venture. Um, you know, it, it's it's very exciting, and it it seems uh, very purposeful. You know, I think a lot of people do make make that make that move to work for SpaceX. Uh, I hear Elon Musk, uh, you know, has some uh, pretty uh, intense uh, work work habits, and I think uh, his employees uh, you know follow those. Um, so I, I think you really have to love space and really be invested in the mission. Um, but uh, you know, definitely whatever he's doing is. Uh, you know, be is pretty successful, and he is he is an interesting guy. So Stephanos actually recommended a, a book called uh, Elon Musk, SpaceX, Tesla, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future by Ashley Vance. It's his biography, and you learn so much about his his work habits, about how he's juggling, you know, SpaceX, Tesla, Solar City, um, Neuralink, Boring Company, um, you know, his personal life, the type of character he is about how um when you send an email to elon musk and he writes back with okay it's like just literally the letters okay it's like the most incredible feeling in the world and he writes back immediately and you know the way that um he he when he sets deadlines stephanos i'm sure you know this but like if if he if something takes six weeks to be done he says i want it done in two weeks and or he says when can you get it done he never demands that it get done in two weeks but he pushes people to make promises that they can't meet because he, he tries to get the most out of them. So he says, oh, you know, NASA can do this in six weeks. When can you do it? And the person will say two weeks, and then they'll say, fuck. You know, that's not going to happen. Or same thing with budget. You know, Neil, Elon Musk will say, well, NASA can build this specific part for $600,000. 
We have $40,000 to do it. Get it done. And he does get it done because he squeezes every drop of, of incredible ingenuity out of these people. And that's why as much as he's ridiculed and uh, people say that he's an, a sociopath or a robot and you know he doesn't know how to work with people, he does squeeze the best um, out of people. And that's why I admire him so much. Recommend the book. Um, and I, I might do a whole separate passage on, um, on Elon Musk just because he's such an incredibly interesting figure. And then on the other side of the coin, you have this guy, Jeff Bezos. And he He's the CEO of Amazon. He's another guy who's, you know, looked at in the media as ruthless and hasn't given a penny of his savings to charity or savings his fortune to philanthropic causes. And Blue Origin, those close to him have said that since he was a kid, he also wanted to, uh, you know, go to outer space and, and, you know, he wanted to be known for um, actually colonizing a uh, another um, place. And his effort is not on, Mar- uh, on Mars. It's actually on the moon. And if you look at, you know, why... Uh, Jeff Bezos wants to colonize uh, the moon. It's it's not so much about climate change. Um, it's all about uh, Bezos is looking at the resources that we have for growing Earth's population. He doesn't think that even with increases in energy efficiency that we can solve humanity's resource pot problem with overpopulation and you know not enough food, not enough resources um, to to supplement us. And so he wants to actually put us on the moon. Um, and back in May 2nd, there was a test in Texas that his company Blue Origin did um, in order to launch and land one of its reusable rockets. So he's taking a page out of Elon Musk's sure, book. Right. Um, and, you know, New Shepard, that's the name of the rocket, is looking to fly with human passengers for the first time as early as this year. So he's even ahead of um, SpaceX's pace. You almost have like an art, like a, the space race between the USSR and, and America. I mean, is that something that you see, this this com- competition between Blue Origin and SpaceX going forward? Yeah, in, in, in some ways I, I do. I, I think you have a couple other players out there as well, including uh, Virgin Orbit with Richard Branson, another company relativity space doing 3d printed rockets uh launcher in brooklyn new york doing 3d printed rockets uh so i think you have a lot of uh, a lot of players out there but definitely the the two most uh, notable are uh blue origin and space race uh spacex yeah for sure and and you know it, it begs the question i mean let's seven has mentioned like physically speaking um you know there are challenges to uh, actually putting putting people putting ordinary people or putting astronauts um on on the moon or, or on mars and you know there's a lot of, of fervor about uh you know getting to mars i mean the question is like would people be interested in this or um you know would uh you know would there be people to to sign up and the answer is yes. I mean, you have uh, an organization called Mars One, and Mars One is looking to actually establish the first human settlement on Mars. And there's something of like an early lottery system where people are um, signing up to be considered um, for, uh, you know, for going up there. I mean, it's funny when, when the idea of setting up a colony on Mars was created, I don't know about you, I thought to myself like, who wants to leave Earth? You know what I mean? Like, would you would you sign up to go on that planet all by yourself? Leave all your friends and family over here? Well, I know Elon Musk would, and I I think you know it's just like we we talked about earlier with the you know explorers of old. Uh, you know, there was inherently a lot of risk involved, but there's also a lot of uh, excitement and uh, you know, things that have never happened before. And I, I think maybe that can uh, outweigh the the fear or risk that you may be feeling. Yeah, for sure. I I just want to mention though, psychologically speaking, I mean, you look at astronauts who go up to the moon, or the, you know, they. Uh, they undertake space missions for a week, a month, a year, whatever it may be, and the psyche that it takes, the impact it takes on their psyche. I mean, you know, there 
there's been a lot of uh, you know empirical research out there where people will go to um, outer space for a significant amount of time, and they'll come back and they'll have extreme depression and um, anxiety and PTSD because think about it. I mean, they see Earth this this planet that we look around and we you know we see all these natural wonders and and the the just how large and enormous um, mountains are and and geysers and all these all these um you know things in nature, but they see Earth from hundreds of kilometers away and they see a speck everything that we know in our existence is just a speck of light and it makes them realize the finitude of their existence just how little you know you could literally flick earth in size from you know in terms of the vastness of outer space and this takes its toll on their psyche and it impairs the relationships you know marriages people people can never enjoy life the same way um so I think that that's an important consideration as we think about potentially putting humans on Mars. Like, are they psychologically equipped to deal with that? Would you? I mean, would you agree with that assessment? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, especially if we're talking about humans on Mars for some duration, you know, longer than humans have ever spent in space. Uh, I think uh, the longest a human has spent in space is on the order of about one year. Uh, I don't remember the astronaut's name. I remember he was. Uh, he's the husband to Gabrielle Giffords. Oh, that would be uh, uh, Mark Spencer, I believe. Mark Spencer, yeah. I, I think it was, no, maybe not Spencer, but keep going. Uh, um, so, yeah, I, I think there's definitely some uh, concern about what the effects of long-term uh, uh, residence in space. What, that, Mark, Mark what, Kelly, sorry. Mark Kelly, what the, those those uh, those effects might be on the you know on the human psyche, but you know, you know not to mention the you know human the you know, our, our physical uh, integrity. Uh, you know, we we don't quite know what the you know, exposure to uh, zero gravity for two, three, four years might have on the human body. Um, in addition to exposure to solar radiation, um, it's, it's something we just haven't done enough studies uh, enough studies on. So definitely a concern. And the study you're referring to, uh, there was there was a great New York Times article on it and Wired. I'll, I'll link it. But it's a cross. Uh, it's a longitudinal study where they look at um, two twins, Scott and Mark Kelly. And if I'm explaining this correctly, one of them. Um, was spent significant time in in, in space, um, and then the other uh, tested his his vitals and his um, you know stats back on Earth, and then over 25 months um, they submitted to a parallel routine of cognitive and physical tests just to kind of understand the uh, changes that took place at all different levels um, on you know in in space, and obviously being that they share the same um, genome. Uh, it was interesting to see, like, like w- you know, one is a control, one is an experimental. Uh, what would happen? Um, and the results kind of showed that long-term exposure to spaceflight is dangerous, and a journey to Mars would be too risky to undergo. Um, and and you know, we can we can link the article if you want to look well, at. It may be risky to undergo with current technologies, but in the future, I'm sure we could, in some ways, accommodate accommodate humans in, in their trip there. Mm. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is this case kind of goes back to the aging segment. Uh, I think they did find that these two brothers they measured their uh, the lengths of their telomeres, uh, you know, before uh, before the the astronaut went to space and after when he returned, and his his telomeres were noticeably uh, longer. Um, so it, it, that kind of goes back to well, that goes to Einstein's theory of relativity, you know, moving it. 
uh, at some rate faster than uh, we do on Earth. Uh, time did slow in some way. And if you look at the study specifically, the International Space Station, they talk about the conditions that Scott Kelly underwent. And he talked about how it's definitely noisy, definitely noisy, fans worrying, electronics humming, the smell, the off-gassing smells of plastics, garbage, and body odors. Um, and uh, to kind of Stefano's point about um, aging, I mean, you look at like weightlessness, for example. Yeah, well, weightlessness, that, that has a direct impact on, uh, you know, how much we're, our body's exerting itself to support itself, to, ex, uh, to, to move around. So you'll, you definitely see some... Uh, some atrophying of uh, you know our our muscles, our our bone density, and things like that. And I think there's uh, you know astronauts have to be vigilant in in uh, exercising and maintaining their their physical health to combat the uh, non-presence the of of gravity. So, so I think it's important to, to kind of take away from this is uh, or, or I, I mean this specific um, topic is like. Going to space is is a, there's a significant risk, and it's not something that um, that lawmakers or entrepreneurs, pioneers are going to just sign you know s sign off on without knowing um, that it's safe for everyone involved. But to Stephanos' point earlier, you do have these these folks who are willing to um, put themselves in that position for the betterment of the human race. Because the reality is, and I want to emphasize this, you know, your great great grandchildren. There's a chance that they might not be raising their families on planet Earth. And I mean, Earth Earth feels very big, you guys. If you've been on an airplane and you've been looking down at the cities and the towns, like it feels like there is a lot of space, but it's all relative. You know, you're on that plane, you're in a car and you pass a billboard, that billboard looks huge. Suddenly you're on a plane, the car looks tiny. And if you're in a space shuttle, I mean, you, it's 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 all uh, relative to the size, the proportion of, of where you are. So um, it's it's certainly something that I think is going to remain, in, you know, in the uh, in in the spectrum of, of uh, public consciousness for for a long time, especially as we continue to get these news reports of Blue Origin or uh, Virgin Orbit or uh, SpaceX continuing to land rockets um, on Mars and the Moon. And I think it will get political too. We didn't really touch on it, but you you know you're gonna have United States wants to be the first fl uh, country to plant the flag and on Mars, and um, you know I'm sure you're gonna get Russia and China uh, are, are gonna be interested in that as well. So um, well, what's interesting about that? I'll just interject yeah. for a moment. Peter Diamandis was talking about the, the potential for independent colonies in and of themselves. So uh, the the formation of new states, new uh, forms of government, new economies. So. You know, it really is the Wild West, and uh, you know, you might not have Earth sovereignty um, spanning uh, the you know, the Moon, the Mars, and the rest of space. And that's almost kind of kind of intriguing, you know, that, that we, we could have a you said the Wild West, like a system where we don't have countries, where it's just like one homogenous like block of people, or it's like it's anarchy. It's like uh, it's like uh, you know the the Lord of the Flies, like every man for himself. Um, that's kind of that's kind of cool as well. And and you look at like maybe how laws will, will transition over. There's like so much so much we can go into here, but um, definitely to kind of come full circle, I think that exploring space has its merits, and you know we can't just shut our eyes and pretend like. Earth is going to be around forever and pretend like, you know, oh, like the future generations will just like worry about themselves. Like, no, we, ha we have to like build the foundation for this now. And it's really great that in a free market economy, you have these, these folks like Musk and Bezos that are taking the initiative. Because let's face it, 
NASA couldn't do this on their own. NASA really couldn't. Um, so, any, any final thoughts on space exploration before we transition to the last segment? I think I'm just going to uh, agree with what you said there. Uh, you know, space is very important, and you know, you know, even if maybe the Earth isn't in danger of dying in the next 30, 40, 100 years, uh, I think uh, humans need to grow. You know, or or else they will. Uh, you know move backwards and I think just that's like a lot of things in life progress is is uh, a requirement um, uh, to stave off uh, regression I, I couldn't agree more and I don't know man I just think if you if you if you like and this is gonna get like a big ex- a bit existential but if you if you like think about what you want to devote your life to like you want to you want to build a career in something that's gonna be purposeful like you know one of our friends is gonna be a doctor he's gonna save human lives um, you know uh, I if you want to be like I'm saying, like a space engineer, I can't think of a more purposeful job than exploring the environment to continue the human race to to actually learn about you know the next frontier. I just think I, I'm it's it's there's really not much else you can do. I mean, I have a lot of respect for the work you're doing right now, um, and it just puts things in perspective. I mean, like I'm I'm going to be a lawyer. Like that's not. <laughs> Uh, that pales in comparison to uh, maybe you'll be a lawyer on Mars. Yeah, <laughs> or I'll, or I'll be like a space lawyer, like the, <laughs> the ethics of like of space travel. I don't know, but it's really interesting. Um, so last segment I wanted I want to touch on is is money and uh how you know how we conceptualize money, um what what money is, whether money actually exists, um delve into all these ideas. So I guess kind of the first question would be, um if you had to explain to a child, let's say you have Stevenos Junior comes up to you and says, Daddy, you know. Has a five dollar bill. Like, what's money? Like, you know, is this is this an abstract? Like, is this a concrete uh, like con- concept? Like, do you have like a, a prodigy child? How would you answer Stephanos Junior. And, and explain to your son what exactly money is? So, I think money is uh, is just some instrument for uh, for accepting uh, you know payment for some good or service. So, for a little kid, uh, you know. A lot of little kids get involved in selling candy in high school or middle school or something like that. Uh, you know, the, somebody could sell a candy bar for you know, his classmate to do his homework for him or something like that. And maybe that value is like you know, three candy bars for a homework assignment. You know, but I think currency, uh, you know, helps in um, you know providing a more easy. Um, mode of exchange of value. Uh, so, so it's okay. I, I want to break that down. So, currencies uh, providing a more convenient, easy exchange of value. So, what you're saying is, so back in the day, Native Americans would would engage in like a barter system. Like, if you have food and I have clothing, I would trade you food for clothing. Yeah. That's right. So, currency. What I'm hearing from you is a way to create a standard, a uniform standard where. Everything, rather than barter, rather than just trade, I need this, you need that, let's exchange. Everything is worth a certain um, amount set by the government or an outside agency, and we are essentially trading things using this standard. Yeah, so I think the key is that we all have to accept that currency is a valid form of payment. So the government kind of backs that up, saying that these U.S. dollars are equivalent to some some value, right? Um, but but I think what's most important about currency and why it exists is that uh, it, it makes payment for goods and services very easy. For example, say somebody you know wants to uh, you know do some barter, you know purchase uh, you know you know I'll, I'll 
speaking like terms of like Catan, for example, somebody wants Settles of Catan. By somebody the way, somebody wants you know three sheep, and somebody has a, a you know a, you know one wood, you know, but they're on two separate parts of the you know, of the world. Uh, you know, it's to to make that trade of those those uh, very tangible goods. Uh, sending the sheep and the wood across the world is is extremely inefficient. So I think what currency does is it it, it makes that that trade a lot easier. So that it's it's a really interesting interesting comparison. Um, so if you actually pull out a human dollar, uh, a human a human dollar, an American dollar, excuse me, the only dollar, and you look at, yeah. and you look at like what it says on there. I believe I don't have a dollar in front of me. But I believe um, it, it denotes in some way that it's backed by the U.S. government, that it, it has like this, the treasury seal of the U.S. government. And to Stephanos' point, that really reinforces the idea that money does not exist. Money is just – it's paper. I could literally take a piece of paper. I could draw like, like uh, you know, a doodle, like, Sponge, like Doodle Bob, like SpongeBob's face on it. And print 10 trillion copies and bring it to the government and, you know, somehow coerce the government and say, this is the new form of money. Or we could, you know, change what money looks like with the U.S. Um, Office of Printing and Engraving. You know, you could switch to the gold standard. But what Stephanie said is like it's not actually worthwhile. And just to kind of, uh, you know, help you guys better understand this, I mentioned Homo Deus, uh, the book by Yuval Noah Harari um, in the aging segment. And Homo Deus, um, you know, he talks about how reality is in three different lenses. There's objective reality, which is what we know to be true through science and empirical research. There's subjective reality, which are thoughts and feelings that only we can experience. Then he talks about intersubjective reality. And I'm going to read you a couple lines from the book because it really reinforces the idea of money. And he says that the intersubject level of reality depends on communication among many humans rather than on the beliefs and individuals of uh, of the, the beliefs and feelings of individual humans. So many of the most important agents in history are intersubjective. So they only exist because gr- large groups of people know they exist. So he looks at money and he says, money has no objective value. You cannot eat, drink, or wear a dollar bill. But as long as billions of people believe in its value, you can use money to buy food, beverages, and clothing. However, if the baker suddenly loses his faith in the, do- in the dollar bill and refuses to give me a loaf of bread for this green piece of, pa- piece of paper, it does not matter much. I can just go down a few blocks to the nearby supermarket. However, if the supermarket cashiers also refuse to accept this piece of paper, along with the hawkers in the market and the salespeople in the mall, then the dollar will lose its value. The green pieces of paper will go on existing, of course, but they will be worthless. And and I hope you understand what I'm saying. The dollar, if people collectively decide we're no longer going to believe in the dollar, it ceases to exist. This actually happened in Myanmar in 1985. The Myanmar government unexpectedly announced that the banknotes of 25, 50, and 100 kiosks were no longer considered legal tender. You were not given the opportunity to exchange them for other things. They're, They're turned into heaps of worthless paper. So if the government decrees that something's no longer money, the value will evaporate. I think uh, just to add on that, you know, the government doesn't necessarily even need to uh, come out and say that the that the these notes are no longer worth anything. But but you can have a uh, you know inflationary environments. For example, mm. you have uh, Germany in the you know, 1930s uh, hi- hyperinflation hyper, hyperinflation where you know the value of the currency is changing by you know, s- you know hundreds of percent from day to day. 
So that the currency really loses its value and, and people no longer want to store their wealth in some currency that's so volatile instead go to something that does hold that is a little bit more stable. So just to break that down for you guys, what he means by hyperinflation, so right now the penny is essentially worthless. Like if you go to the supermarket and you want to buy a bag of chips for two ninety nine, if you brought them three hundred pennies, a lot of places would not accept that. Um, j- just because the penny, the penny in and of itself is worthless. So in Germany, um, after World War One, they experienced uh, an, an economic hyperinflation where the dollar bill in Germany was almost like I don't I don't know the math like one one hundredth of a penny or some, something along those lines, where you could have a hundred dollar bills and that's one penny, or ten thousand dollar bills and that's like like yeah, Deutschmarks. like 20 yeah you know 20 cents and so people didn't know what to do with all these worthless bills so they actually would put them in wheelbarrows and they would bury them out in the yard they would burn them it's almost it's it's like farcical but um and and it goes to show you to Stefanos's point the value of money is not stable and we're going to get into that when we talk about the federal reserve in a moment because it changes with something called inflation and deflation so i want to pivot really quickly to the disparity in different societies in their currency systems because Stefanos, right now the united the united nations recognizes 180 forms of currency for the 198 countries in the world, according to the World Atlas. And, you know, that begs the question, why? I mean, we've established that currency is a way for, you know, every human being to exchange goods and services according to this uniform standard. So why can't I, you know, essentially trade someone um, raw goods, some sugar cane um, from, you know, Central America for um, some, you know, burlap sack, I don't know, from from uh, East Asia. Why, why do we have to have something called the exchange rate and, you know, account for different forms of currency? What's the, what's the utility in that? Yeah, so I, I think that maybe it comes down to more uh, politics, you know, sovereignty you know, of, of, of countries. So, you know, we, we here in the U.S., we have the, the central bank. We we produce U.S. dollars. Uh, the central bank has a lot of power in, in uh, determining the value of our U.S. dollars, right? So, you know, you might have a country like, you know, you have uh, the EU uh, producing the euro. They don't want their the value of their currency to be manipulative, manipulatable by some other power. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, from a political standpoint, uh, sovereignty standpoint, it's important to have your own currency uh, if you can, uh, you know, if you do have the backing for it. I, I, would, I would agree with that 100%. I think that co- the countries are always very um, wary about losing their, their power and losing their, their individuality, their, their autonomy. And if every country used the U.S. dollar, then the U.S. would be, you know, something of like a – uh, Leviathan and every country would be subservient to it because like Stefano said, every country's central bank uh, determines the value of its money. So you can't have this one country determining how much things cost around the world. That wouldn't make sense. So, you know, th- that's kind of a nice segue to uh, the, the notion of the the, net or the Federal Reserve and the U.S.'s central bank. So most people, I would say, most people in their 20s and 30s have even ne- never heard of the Federal Reserve or the Fed as it's called. Um, or they, they have heard of the Fed, but they don't really know what the Fed does. But it turns out the Fed, you could make a case, is the most powerful organization in the world. So, you know, how would you explain to our listeners what the Fed does and why the Fed is so important in America? Uh, so, so the Fed, from a very, uh, I guess, simplistic standpoint, it... It, it determines how how cheap we can borrow money. So it really all comes down to interest rates. And you know, when you're going to purchase a car or uh, you know, purchase something with your credit card, the Fed uh, the Fed is directly well indirectly uh, uh, you know 
determining how how cheap you can borrow money, what rate you can borrow money at. Um, and in in terms of uh, you know mortgages, the the Fed also uh, plays a role in uh, determining the interest rate that you might get on a home. So I, I think the Fed is very important and definitely is uh, influencing our everyday decisions. You know, you you might buy a house in, in the event that money is a lot cheaper because of the Federal Reserve, um, or maybe you hold off. Um, maybe you will hold off on that car because the interest rate is so high. So uh, yeah, the Federal Reserve is very powerful, and I think it's you know we don't see it working. Uh, it's not right in front of us, but uh, it's influencing our everyday decisions. And you know it's important to realize that the federal the people who actually make these decisions, Stephanos, they're not elected or they're not under the um, the you know the watchful eye or, or, or you know the uh, the control of the U.S. government. And the Federal Reserve is an independent agency that's um, kind of acts uh, runs parallel to Congress. I believe that the chair of the the Federal Reserve. Um, was appointed, uh, so there is some degree of of control. Um, but you know, the Fed, the group that actually makes monetary policy um, and supervises the the payment system, they're not necessarily elected. So there is controversy about whether or not these people should be um, accountable to the public. They should be up for election. I mean, do you think that 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 system should change, or is it's fine the way it is? I I, I think the system is uh, perfect the way it is. Uh, so you don't want to introduce politics into in uh, you know, the management of of the uh, of the central bank, and I say that because uh, you know, for example, maybe it serves someone well to campaign on uh, you know cheaper interest rates, for mm. example, right, for uh, making lending money a lot easier for the American people, and that person might be elected, but that that uh, might be irresponsible and not be right. Be, that might not be the right uh, economic decision. But just to play devil's advocate, uh, Jay Powell, who's who's the the current chair of the Federal Reserve, he was nominated by President Trump and confirmed by the Senate. So couldn't you argue that? I mean, it's kind of a sad reality, but these folks are already kind of influenced by politics because they have to, you know, you have a Republican appointing this guy. He he might make decisions in the the conduct of the Fed that are more fiscally conservative, or you don't think you think it's kind of ap- apolitical. So, so I think uh, because these these uh, you know, chairs are appointed, I, I think you can you know influence the philosophy of the Federal Reserve whether they're uh, you know prone to you know low. Uh, low interest rate environments, or uh, more conservative, and want to you know, make lending a little bit more difficult. But I think uh, once they are appointed, they are very independent, and uh, they should not be able to be coerced in any way. Yeah, I, I want to mention one more thing with regards to the Fed, and that's that's national debt. And this is something that's that's kind of um, you know the, the Fed is is in a sense responsible for. It's more on a macro level what's happening um, with American. Uh, American debt, holistically speaking, American uh, spending, um, the the federal budget deficit. So right now, if you go to, to usdebtclock.org, there's a running ticker. And this is if you're really bored one day, you have literally nothing to do. You can just sit on your um, on your computer and just watch the debt clock, um, you know, running infinitely. We're at $23 trillion right now. If you go into, I think it's Union Square in New York City, you can see the debt clock. Um, and, you know, $22, $23 trillion in, in, in national debt. So, I mean, how would you explain, again, like to a child, what the national debt is and how the Fed is connected to, to, the, to the notion of national debt, if, if it is at all? Sure. So, first, uh, what is the national debt? So, the national debt 
you know, every year the U.S. has some budget and has some spending that they need to allocate that budget to. But we do experience budget deficits where you know we don't necessarily raise enough in taxes or we want to pursue some programs that we didn't anticipate. Uh, so we... Uh, we experience some deficits and take out some, the U.S. government takes out some loans and they take out those loans by selling essentially IOUs to other countries, to individuals. Um, so that, that's really what the, what the debt is. It's an accumulation over years of those, those budget deficits, of those IOUs. Um, and uh, your second question was, how does that tie to the yes. to the central bank? Yes, the Federal Reserve. To the Federal Reserve. Um, so the Federal Reserve, that I, I think it comes back to the, the cheapness of, of money. So the Federal Reserve, with a, you know, if the Federal Reserve has a low interest rate, uh, you know, uh, has the intent to you know, provide a low interest rate environment, that will make it a lot cheaper for not only you and me to take out debt, but also the U.S. government. So the uh, you know, the, the deficit, the, the, the national debt should grow at a, a slower rate with those lower interest rates. And if you go to this website, you see a lot of red. And you guys have heard in the media um, how significant the, the U.S. debt is. Um, and, you know, you look at, the, at personal debt is, uh, what is this, 19... 19 billion or 19 trillion the mortgage debt is about 16 trillion the student loan debt is is almost 2 trillion credit card debt personal debt so most people in the media or rather most people um on the left would say what does this matter i mean if we're if if we're the most powerful financial um country in the world why does it matter if we have a, a debt of 22, 23 trillion? Um, and this, you know, I, I know this is a very broad question to ask, but, um, you know, because you, uh, you have folks that want to increase U.S. spending, um, who, you, you know, increase U.S. spending to the degree that we are investing in things like space exploration and, um, you know, environmental research and the Department of Defense and public health and welfare, all these different education, all these different extremely legitimate causes, but we're spending imaginary money. And I know all money is imaginary, but we're spending money we don't have, like Stefano said, IOUs. So why, you know, to respond to folks on the left that want to spend tens of trillions of dollars on these causes, why should it matter that we have such a significant national debt? So I, I think that's that. It's uh, not black and white. I, I, so I think the you, know, you look at the U.S. national debt. I think you said it was twenty-two trillion or something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a hundred, five hundred, ten percent um, of our of our uh, GDP. Um, but I think uh, we're, we're we're doing you know, relatively well compared to other countries that are performing uh, have you know very good economies. Um, you know, China. I think. You know, we, we look to because of its extremely high growth rate. I think they're on the order of 250% uh, debt to GDP. So 100%, uh, you know, it's, it's not, not. Did you explain so what, what GDP was, the gross domestic product? Uh, I didn't. So GDP, in my mind, is just the value of all the goods and services produced in the economy. In your mind, but not in the mind of anyone else. The value of all the. So the gross value of all the goods and services that, that, were, that were produced in that year. So, like, so that's so, government spending, that's investment, that's consumption. And that's also includes net net exports. So a, a report card. How good? How healthy is this economy? Uh, so so I mean, hundred. If we're looking to compare ourselves to other countries, I think we're relatively health, healthy at hundred percent debt to GDP. But I can understand where people might not want to uh, extend that uh, much further because you know, as as you do increase your debt to GDP ratio, as you do increase your debt, you know, th- there are you know larger and larger payments that you do need to fulfill. Mm. And maybe in the future, uh, especially if we have high higher interest rates. Um, that that might become unsustainable, and you saw that with, for example, Greece in 
2010 with their national debt crisis, 180 to 200 percent debt to GDP, um, and uh, you know that was uh, difficult, and uh, they're just getting out of it now. So I I think it's something that you have to. Uh, be careful about but I think what helps us is that we do uh, borrow in our own currency mm. uh, so in the event we ever did need to pay back our debt the Fed Reserve could print money you know, to, 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 you know in some ways to pay pay that debt back now that might affect inflation mm. but um, it, it's a balance that we have to reach wow I mean this is an amazing conversation because we're really we started out talking about like philosophically like the value of money and then suddenly we're talking about like different currencies and then the Federal Reserve and then the macro level debt so let's kind of bring it down to the micro level as as, as we're you know going to wrap up this conversation in the ordinary American the ordinary family um, and, and economic cycles and you keep coming back to inflation and, and how much things are, are worth I mean as we sit here in, in 2019 um, and you know let's say you're you're an American family you know middle uh, middle class what's that like 50,000 gross um and if you're going to kind of forecast economic cycles i mean we're just talking about america right now should the the middle class american be worried about a recession or depression in the next few years in america because there's a lot of uh, i don't know if it's like fear fearful rhetoric but a lot of information out there you read like every day like oh you know the next recession is is about to be uh, about to be here, you should start saving up, um, what have you. So, should the ordinary American be worried about this, or is this just kind of uh, you know folks in the media blowing smoke? Um, so, I, I think for the ordinary American, we're you know we're in a very low inflationary environment, less than two percent, uh, which is quite good. And what does uh, that what does that mean, Stefano? So, low inflationary environment, less than two percent. So, you know, the the price of goods and services is rising at a rate of less than two percent per year. So, so, so if a loaf of bread costs two dollars in 2018, it's going to be like two dollars four cents. So it's very, very minimal. It's very minimal. Okay. So it's very stable. So you know that 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 uh, that stability is good for uh, you know the American public to con- continue to have faith in their in their incomes and their abilities to purchase things. Um, so you know we're one we're we're very low inflation and two the unemployment rate's incredibly low. So I, I think there's reason to be positive. You know. Unfor- uh, you know, unfortunately, we're not seeing the wage growth that we'd uh, you know, seen in the past where you have very low unemployment. It should provide a lot of wage pressure. But you know, I think we should be relatively pleased with uh, the economy from a macro standpoint and not too um, you know, fearful of some incredible recession in the near future. Uh, you know, if you're an economist or if you're very involved in uh, you know, finance, things like that, maybe you do pay attention to things like uh, the interest rates on, on treasury yields, which you know, some, some, uh, some financial gurus are saying predicts some recession within the next 10 months because of some inversion. Now that's getting really technical, but I think that that doesn't, that doesn't affect really the, the average American. Um, you know, we, you know, the economy is a, is, uh, it's very natural to have, uh, you know, cycles. You have, uh, you know, p- short periods of boom or longer periods of boom followed by short periods of, of, uh, uh bust. But, you know, I think as long as you're, uh, you know, uh, being financially responsible, saving, um, investing in you know some retirement fund, uh, I, I think that's that's more than enough to uh, to uh, shield yourself from any small small uh, economic uh, failure, I guess. So if you put your money in a bank, it's FDIC insured. If you take Stevanos's advice, it's going to be Axios insured. So if you guys lose all your money, Stevanos is going to is going to back you up. Yeah. Um, so really, uh, a really interesting um, look at, at what's happening at you know at economics, the boomer bust cycle. Stevanos, I uh, really appreciate that. And um, like you said, I mean. 
uh, or, or actually just just one more thing. So right now, um, j- just kind of hit home that question. Should the average American be saving, be be like you know, cashing their nuts in case of a storm, or do you think it's it's a safe enough economic climate where people don't have to be concerned about losing all their money? Um, I, yeah, I think it's always smart to diversify your your investments. So, you know, but given that the inflation is so low, I, I think uh, you know it's it's not a bad thing to be you know saving money in high interest savings accounts. Um, you know, if inflation was much higher, maybe you'd want to move that out and put it to the stock market. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it really just comes down to diversification, making sure you have that emergency fund in the event something, you know, some you know, major cost comes up, um, but also continue, continue to invest in the stock market or, or you know, bonds if, 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 you're in, if you're maybe uh, at a different point in your life. And I know we didn't really plan to talk about investing, but I mean, we're, early, we're already kind of discussing it. Uh, I, for a long time, I had my money in a savings account and I didn't realize <laughs> that that was um, losing, fool- losing money. Exactly, <laughs> that that was foolish until Sevenos and, and another one of our mutual friends actually sat me down. It was an intervention and they were like, what the hell are you doing? You're, you're losing money. So can you briefly explain, how, if, if you guys, if you have all your savings in, you know, uh, Capital One or Chase savings account, Sevenos, how are you losing money? Um, it comes back down to it comes back to inflation, right? So you know, if the uh, you know, price of goods, if the price of something is rising uh, faster than the uh, uh, than the interest rate that your money is getting, then that then your money is going to be less valuable from year to year. So uh, you know, if I have if a loaf of bread like you brought up is two dollars this year, but two dollars and four cents next year. If in that year I, I save two dollars and put it in that savings account and it accumulates zero interest, um, maybe in year one I'm able to buy a loaf of bread, but in year two because the loaf of bread's two dollars and four cents, that money is no longer able to buy me a loaf of bread. Mm. Um, so the, the idea that money does lose value over time into uh, you, know, you can put it in a savings account, but it won't appreciate uh, in value. Uh, quick enough usually to keep up with inflation. So I want to really emphasize that point, guys. If, if you're not listening, if, if, if you're zoning out, if this is too technical and you didn't get anything from this segment, what he just said about the value of money is not stationary. $1 in 2010 is not worth the same as if we're on Mars in 2100 or, you know, a $1 in 1950 is not. I mean, uh, you know, you'll hear from from my, my father. We recorded an episode um, uh, in, uh, I think it's episode 18, um, when we talk about generational, the differences in the baby boomers in the 1950s and 60s and, you know, millennials today is if you wanted to buy a, deli, you know, a, a sandwich, a hot dog and a bag of chips, it was 20 cents yeah. in, you know, Brooklyn and, you know, 1960. And now that's ten bucks. So Stevanos's point is, money will change. So if you're putting it in a savings account to waste away to get one percent each year, you're not maximizing that. Um, when you could be investing, like you said, diversifying in stocks and you know mutual funds and bonds and investing in the economy. Maybe we can have you back at some point in the future, and we can talk about how to invest and you know uh, you know where you should be putting your money, like a stock. Stock investing for dummies. What do you think of that? Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, sounds but uh, it's really interesting that you're so um, you know passionate about money, just because you're. I mean, this this right here is an interesting fellow because you know he's devoted his life, as we said, to space exploration, but he has these other interests and in finance and and um, and investing and and really a, a privilege to to have you here to to discuss these um, these topics. And any final uh, thoughts on on the currency, the the conversation on money? Uh, yeah, I just think it's. Final thoughts. I think it's, you know, very basic. Uh, you know, be 
financially responsible, uh, like we talked about earlier. Uh, but if you are interested, uh, you know, if the uh, listeners have any interest, definitely maybe give uh, some research of the Federal Reserve and how interest rate uh, interest rates operate a try. It's uh, it's it's pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, we're gonna have a lot of of uh, resources uh, for you guys to read about. Uh, interest rates, the Fed, and and all of that uh, wonderful stuff. Learn more, and obviously, you know, emails. Send them to nervoushabitspodcast at gmail dot com. Um, and Stephanos, uh, if if there's any counter, you know, uh, confusion, I can have Stephanos kind of um, enlighten me because he's certainly the the go to guy on this. We should make like a hedge fund, the Ricky Rosen uh, hedge fund. Have your uh, listeners invest. Oh my God! No, so that, that all that, goes into like a savings account. That's it's, like, that, it's like one percent. That sounds like a, a pyramid scheme uh, <laughs> waiting to happen. Um, guys, so it's been a fruitful discussion here. We talked about just to kind of uh, you know recaps and takeaways we talked all about aging um, talk about the the difference between biologic age and actual age uh, the uh, you know g- the development of um, telomeres and you know how how you can ascertain what the ages of, of your cells are we talked about free radicals and antioxidants and how they protect us from aging and the concept from Pierre Diamandis of uh, health care uh, you know sick care rather than um, preventive care we delved into space exploration the theoretical reasons why we should be concerned with exploring space, um, you know, exploiting those resources and having a fail-safe um, for Earth. We looked at Blue Origin colonizing the moon and SpaceX, uh, the amazing Elon Musk um, potentially getting to Mars, uh, the timeline for that. And then we talked about currency, you know, what what money really is, um, how much power the Fed has, and we forecasted some economic cycles um, the next few years for America. So it's been a fruitful discussion. I mean, this is, people are, are you know, furiously taking notes and um, I hope that we that you've learned an awful lot as, as much as I have um, uh, on this on this pod. Uh, Stevanos, um, and any last words for our listeners? Yeah, so uh, last words, you know, this is definitely an, an exciting time and, uh, you know, you get space, you have economics, you have, you know, aging and I, I think, uh, you know, we're, because of how easily accessible information is, I think we should all be, uh, you know, endeavoring to kind of uh, explore all these, any field that really you're passionate about uh, because of how easy it really is. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's it really. Just the value of you know, information at this moment is, is, is really great. I always look for ways to tie together segments and I think this one could be exploration and curiosity because the more curious you are about learning about aging, the longer you can live, the more curious you are about learning about currency, the more you can lo- you can earn. And then of course, the exploration of space um, actually motivating your, uh, y- you know, your learning there. So uh, maybe that can be like the, the theme, the title of the episode. Um, next week, guys, uh, we actually have a special treat. Um, we're going to have uh, Stevanos and another, uh, another uh, f- friend of mine do a uh, bonus episode just to kind of chat about a couple different, uh, you know, d- different subjects. That's going to be um, our, our bonus episode to, to 17 coming up soon. And then episode 18, I kind of alluded to, um, we are going to have my very own father on episode 18 to discuss a variety of issues, including generational differences. We'll be looking at the differences between the baby boomers and the millennials. How has technology widened the generational gap? Career development. Most people work in one industry, but my dad bounced around. We're going to talk about his experiences and a lot of other J-isms on health happiness and living the best life so that's in two episodes we have a bonus episode next week then following that episode 18 will be coming up next on nervous habits stevanos my friend it's been a pleasure having you on here thank you so much for joining me hope it was as fun for you as it was for me yeah really fun ricky i hope to be on again soon we will certainly have you back guys 
send your questions or comments in uh, for me or for, or for my guest uh, at nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast. Um, send us, you know, ideas of what you want, um, you know, me to talk about, future topics, questions, comments, concerns, criticism. Send those to nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Hope you enjoyed this episode, the long-awaited um, appearance from Mr. Axios. Hope you got a lot out of it. And like I said, tune in next two episodes, the bonus episode, and then episode 18 to hear from myself and my father here on Nervous Habits. Stay nervous, guys. Take care.